You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey guys, Carlton here. If you are listening to this episode on the Archaeology Podcast Network All Shows feed, please consider subscribing to the Life and Ruins Podcast channel to support our show. Listening to and downloading our episodes on the Life and Ruins channel helps our podcast grow. So please, subscribe to the Life and Ruins Podcast hosted by the Archaeology Podcast Network on whichever platform you're using to listen to us on the All Shows feed. Support our show by following our channel. Now on to the episode. Welcome to episode 95 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. Tonight's guest is Isaac Russell, a.k.a. Zeke Darwin. He's an eighth grade science teacher and TikTok personality. Isaac, it is a pleasure having you on this evening. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Super busy. This is my first kind of little hour or two with my wife and newborn being gone since we got home a week ago. So yeah. it's kind of quiet around here. Congrats on the baby, man. That's like a, I guess, uh, an accomplishment. I don't know what the word would be, but like, that's a good thing for you. I appreciate it, David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can, I, you can, I, it's like achievement on Xbox, you know? You just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> baby born. I, I heard it's a handful, especially like that first two weeks like once you get home because it's just such a new thing you know it's just like night and day difference you go to bed one night and then the next day it's like there are no more chances where you can just like run an errand with no responsibilities like for the rest wow. of the next 18 years you've got, you've got <laughs> someone else you're in charge of that goes first that's uh yeah that scares me but props to you man <laughs> Yeah, so I, I guess I found you on Instagram or TikTok, I'm sorry, via my mom. And she was like, hey, look at this guy. You should talk more like him. And I was like, I probably should. You have a good personality, like you just are direct. And then lo and behold, I found out you're a teacher. So therefore, it makes sense. And yeah, I, I really liked your videos. So I guess before we get into that, what got you into science and like history and all that? So what got me into science? I mean, you, going back a long time, like as a kid, I was obsessed with science. Dinosaurs, that was like my first fascination. Nice. Like go to the museum and know all the dinosaurs, but like still don't know the order of the months. But then I kind of lost that fascination for science. And it wasn't actually, which this sounds really weird until after I had became a science teacher, because like <laughs> I wanted to be a teacher. And science was the topic I went with because I always liked science as a kid and I liked animals. But once I actually became a science teacher and realized like I needed to learn what I was talking about and I started kind of diving into it more than I ever did in school. And I was like, I don't know, I just like fell in love with it all over again. So it was really kind of a late bloomer when I came back to science. Um, it's not your typical story when it comes to that. And I think that's a lot of the reason why I'm a teacher. People always ask me like why I didn't go into some more specific field. And it's like, <laughs> if I, if I did it all over again, I probably would, but I didn't realize there were so many opportunities in the sciences still today. And so now it's kind of cool to be the teacher that's trying to get these other kids to realize like you can specialize in a specific animal if you really want to, and like go study it. Like these opportunities are still out there. As he said, specific animal, a cat just walked across his desk. That's really funny to me. It takes me back to the Zoom oh. teaching days. This would happen <laughs> nonstop. Oh, that was a nightmare. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think 
I remember Mr. Mills in seventh grade and Miss Carbone in eighth grade. Of course, that was a joke. But like the science teachers that really care and they really like know there's a kid that, you know, is this kid smart or interested in, in the subject. They take time to show you cool stuff like with the Bunsen burner and all that. So it's definitely like such a cool thing, I bet, to be a science teacher. Yeah. I, I am the way I am because of mine, I would say. Yeah, you definitely have a an influence where you can kind of, I don't know, like for one example, there was one kid who was just like obsessed with reptiles and herpetology and he wasn't like a straight A student or anything, but he had that genuine interest. And I was interested in some of the lizards nearby because they're Italian wall lizards. They're from Italy. I'm in Topeka, Kansas. They're not supposed to be here. They've been here like 60 years because they got loose from some pet store. But nobody's ever studied them, so I kind of got on a little study type thing with him, and we were just kind of doing population surveys, and then came up with a hypo like we just came up with a hypothesis and tried to do some actual science. And like that kid, he still emails me every once in a while, but I think he'll probably go into some kind of herpetology field. So it's cool to know that like we can influence them so much and kind of help them thrive, whereas they probably wouldn't have if they didn't run into somebody who was randomly interested in these Italian wall lizards already. Yeah, I, I had a very similar experience. And I've, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but my fourth grade teacher, I don't think she was really into dinosaurs, but she had understood how to get me close to people and meet people who were interested in dinosaurs. So I got to, she really set my career in motion by just like taking interest in what I was doing and putting in that extra effort. And I am definitely here now as an archaeologist because of her. So, yeah, thank you for your work. <laughs> it's much appreciated. I think we all have teachers that kind of like influenced us in some way. And it's not always even with like the the, edu- the subject matter. Like I was it was a, it was a movie, honestly. But what got me into teaching a Hallmark movie, I watched it my sophomore year and I had always struggled with Tourette's. And it was about this guy named Brad Cohen. And he went on to be like the Georgia teacher of the year and he had Tourette's really bad. And it was just kind of a really cool story. And like, when I think back to like a teacher that influenced me, it it wasn't even a teacher. I honestly knew it was just kind of seeing how much he could help people like me and then seeing how much I could help people like me kind of based on those experiences. So like, yeah, I I guess I was just going to say we all have a teacher at some point that really guided us. That's cool, man. Yeah, 100%. Kind of like bringing it back. So you're currently in Kansas. Were you Are you originally from Kansas or did you move there like for work? No, I am originally from Kansas. I'm from a small town, Sabetha, Kansas. We have like 2,000 people there. The town I almost went to go to school at where my dad went, Burn, Kansas. Um, the population is probably like less than 100. There were like four kids in my class. So I'm born and raised in really small town, Kansas, and then moved to Topeka. And now I'm in Kansas City. And that was just more college type age started moving around. Gotcha. I hear it's flat there. And not I don't hear that. I've actually driven through Kansas many times. And yeah, I'm sure like in the cities, it's probably like a lot different because my impression of Nebraska was like, there's nothing here but corn. Uh, but then when I went to Lincoln, I was like, oh, this is like a cool, like little hip little city. So like what's Kansas City? I've been to Kansas City on the the other side. What's it like there? I mean, I've only been here for like a week, a week and a half now. And I am like 
the least extroverted person. I will stay <laughs> inside and play Call of Duty or whatever as much as possible. So I'm not the best <laughs> person to ask that kind of question to. But I don't know. It's it's nice. It's still you still kind of get that small town feel wherever you're at around here. Like I'll still drive to the local Casey's just because like it reminds me of home. So I don't know. I'm not a city person, but you can kind of still get that small town feel out here. Gotcha. So going to Topeka, right? You went to KU? I went to Washburn University. Um, so oh, okay. half right, an hour right, right. away from KU. Gotcha. Did you originally start off pursuing a degree in science education or did you start off with something else and kind of wander yourself into the science education program? So the main drive for community college was just that I was still at a point where throughout high school, I was big into baseball, wanted to play college baseball, wanted to play D1. Wanted to like have a life doing baseball, which was not a realistic thing. So I went kind of to JUCO to get a couple more years in. It was another small town. It was actually a town that was smaller than my hometown. There were a thousand people in that town. So it was just kind of a nice little intermediate before I moved off to the city and university. And it, w- it was pretty cool. I would definitely recommend junior college or community college. Like I didn't end up sticking out with the baseball. I lasted like two weeks there. But it was a great opportunity to kind of start taking some of those education classes and general science classes and save a lot of money while kind of staying close to home before I went off then to Topeka. Right. I did the somewhat similar. I went to uh, community college first. I took a year off from school and because I was trying like I was not ready for a four year program and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I, I can understand that and saving that money aspect. And I learned a lot. Like I had a lot of fun at community college. That's for sure. Like I highly recommend it because I don't think if I hadn't gone to a, a community college, I don't think I would have found anthropology or archaeology, quite frankly. Like I would have gone probably to a four year degree, done a history program and and never thought about archaeology ever and be coaching football for some team out in the middle of nowhere and teaching high school history. It's the life. Like I didn't go to one of those schools, but like, what's the vibe like there? Cause I've seen community, but I imagine that's far from like what a community college is like, but Dude. yeah, if you don't mind explaining. I had, so two different years and two completely different experiences. My, my okay. first year when I was still like trying to be on the baseball team, I started out in what they called the overflow room. So I had like 12 roommates and a room meant for six people. There were three rooms that shared kind of a living space and then bunk beds in each one. So we had 12 people fitting in there. And it was it was just a miserable experience for me. I ended up moving back home and just commuted every day because it was like a half an hour drive. But then the next year, three of my friends, which were like some of my best friends from my hometown, they were all in the grade below me. And so they all came out with me and we got a little apartment together and they were all on the football team. So they kind of like helped me meet other people. And I loved it that year. I mean, really, it was like high school, but everybody was living in these little apartments, like really close to each other. And it was just like, you'd go to class and then you were like a high schooler living in a town with other high schoolers for the rest of the time. And it was a lot of fun. Did you have like a small ratio of like students to teachers or was there like big classes or were they generally like pretty tight knit? It was, it was more like high school classes. So it was more tight knit. It wasn't even like when I went to Washburn, you would be like put with people kind of with the same interests, like education there. It was more like 
literally just kind of the small town experience. Like you would get to know people and then you'd have classes with them. And really most of the people, you knew their names when you would see them. You didn't necessarily hang out with them all, but like it was a cool feel where you just knew everybody. I've never really thought of it like that. I didn't know there were dorms. I guess it was an apartment later, but mine didn't. Huh. Mine did not have dorms. Like, there's yeah. no way. No, it was strictly like there was apartments that you could do. But I mean, like the Northern Virginia Community College systems, like twelve campuses spread out across three counties, and you just you just commuted. I think like my my home campus was in Manassas, like ten miles away. But I went to the Loudon one because that had a more of a history and archaeology focus. So you kind of like each one focused on something. Like uh, First Lady Jill Biden taught English at the um, Prince William County one. So she was doing that when she was second lady. Is that what the vice president's wife is called? That's what she was doing the entire time. But she first vice lady. I have no idea. Second lady seems kind of like a demeaning term. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's a good question. Anyway, (laughs) moving on from that. So you shifted from that to like an actual university after that, right? Right. So once I got my two years done there, had my associates, I uh, ended up going to Washburn and there was no real reason for it, honestly. Like like genuinely, I was just your typical kid going to school and like knew I was going to be a teacher. Like anywhere Mm -hmm. I could get in was fine with me. So that was the closest one. So yeah, I moved down there and then it was a bit different than Highland because then you're really only with kind of your cohort, like the education majors is who I was spending all of my time with. And that was cool because then we kind of grew as a class for the next few years together. So it was a lot different than Highland, but at the same time, that was kind of the point where I was like, all right, it's time to actually settle down and start putting school first. So it was kind of the perfect little I don't know, perfect transition in there from like the JUCO having a little bit more fun to settling down at a university and starting to think more about my future. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting to me. So I did, I think I did the same as David, just straight into a a four-year university and it was a state university, Colorado State. So there's, I had classes of like 150 to like 200 folks, like my first couple years. Mm -hmm. That was not really good for me and how I wanted to learn and whatnot. So I, I always would thought that taking the, like a junior college or like getting associates or something would have been better for my first couple years, I think. But also then you're in the dorms on campus and you meet a lot of people. So there's this, like, it's a double-edged sword kind of thing. I can't, that, I can't say one is better than the other. Yeah. I would definitely say that is a downside to the JUCO route is that once you then get to the four-year university, you haven't like met other people. So like you're just kind of thrown into it and some people deal with that really well and are going to be meeting people, but I'm not the person who's going to go out of my way to meet people. So I honestly went like probably three years at Topeka and I could like the number of friends I've met probably one hand, which they're all good friends. It's just like, I don't know. Highland was Highland was good for me and a lot of people, but it also had that downside because then you move on and those other people don't go with you. Yeah. I think like I went to college with several high school friends. Like we're still like really best friends now. And I was with them and like we had, they would bring a friend over from class and I, I had like two archaeology friends and that's about it. <laughs> and like I had like my college friends or like the, they were my college friends, which is funny to me, but 
Yeah, when when you said you could count it on your hand, I, I literally couldn't think like if I met that many people in college either. I think that might be pretty common. Yeah, and the person who I actually lived with in Topeka, I met him at Highland because he was on the baseball team and I would go sleep on his floor as opposed to sleeping in that overflow room because nice. it was a shady situation and you could get busted. You'd get busted with anybody had anything and like being in that room it was a risk. So I would just go sleep on their floor like every night. And then I moved to Topeka and we moved in together and stayed living together for a few years. Nice. Well, I want to ask you about how to get a science ed degree and like how, like that whole process, but let's move on to the next segment and we can do that there. Cause I would love to know. Welcome back to segment two of a life endurance podcast, episode 95. We're here with Isaac Russell, AKA Zeke Darwin, I should probably start off. Why why is Zeke Darwin? Is it like a pen name? Not really. Like baseball growing up, my coaches always called me Zeke. And then when I started posting on TikTok, it was early on in the pandemic. And I had no intentions of like my page getting big or anything. And I really didn't want Mm -hmm. kids like looking up my name or anything. So I was like, all right, I'll go with Zeke. And then with Charles Darwin. So I was like, I'll just go Zeke Darwin and I think by the time I changed it to Zeke Darwin, I was starting to post more about evolution. Mm. I think I did have like my normal Twitter handle for a while, but once kids started finding it, I changed it because I was like, I don't want this to be like a personal account at all. <laughs> I gotcha. Okay, cool. That sometimes I wonder if I should use a different name on the internet, but no, I, yeah. I actually I had one night where I don't remember what a video I did was, but I had I had made some people mad, just like your typical people who get mad at my content, and they started like. <laughs> posting videos of me with like, like, like Nazi type stuff because I was teaching about evolution and stuff. And that's when I was like, okay, I don't want these people searching my name and finding where I teach and like calling or like, I didn't need that in my life. So that's that was when I was like, all right, we'll figure a different name. Yeah. Whoa. So like, like stitching videos with you and stuff like that or. Yeah. And like duetting them. And I mean, I, I just blocked them pretty quickly because I didn't like, I don't know. That was kind of my first run in as a teacher where it's like, "Eh, I might need to stop this because like, I like posting these videos, but I don't know if it was worth the headache of potentially having these people going after me and after my job. That's like my worst nightmare. Like wake up and check my phone and be like, all right, who added me today? (laughs) Oh, and it's always in the back of my head too. Like if I reply to a comment or something, like I, I spend a lot of time checking profiles just to like, make sure this isn't one of my students who I'm like, Hmm. like, or like the people who like, will just say stupid stuff about evolution. And I just kind of troll them back. It's like, all right, I better go make sure that's not one of my students on here commenting. (laughs) Right. Well, let's get more into TikTok towards the end here, but I'd be curious to know, like, what's it like teaching like in, in middle school or like in eighth grade? I guess you don't get compared to a Nazi. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I, I was trying to think. I don't think that's ever happened. So <laughs> I don't get compared to Nazis. No, I really enjoy it. What I have found, though, and like, is I've kind of gone back and forth with it. I, I still love teaching just as much today as when I started. Honestly, I love it a lot more. I've gotten a lot more passionate about the stuff I teach. But it, you do as a teacher, and I feel like all teachers are kind of feeling this right now. Like the time you actually get to spend teaching and preparing for teaching and like actually working on lessons, it just dwindles and dwindles as we get kind of stretched more and more thin. I mean, 
I don't know how many times a week I lose my plan because I'm subbing for other teachers that are out right now in the sub shortage. So like when you get to teach, it's awesome, but it's just, there are so many other things constantly being like prioritized. It feels like over the teaching and that can really get disheartening, I think, and really kind of drive a lot of people down. Yeah. Does it, this, I mean, I don't think teachers were, treated super well before the pandemic, but they are certainly not treated well in, or at least now during, as the pandemic keeps going on, it seems like funding is going from every school district in the States. Yeah. 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 Like power to you for, for sticking with it. it. The thing that's the most different throughout the pandemic is like the funding was always an issue, but like we made it work, but like, I think people always kind of had a favorable view of teachers. And over the last year or two, it's just like, you don't really get that feeling anymore. Like I've had local news stations that wanted to like do video, do like a little segment on me as being a local teacher that's like teaching on TikTok. And it's like, I don't want local people to know that I'm teaching so much evolution because like, I don't know, you just like, you don't, it's... I don't know. You're almost seen as an enemy. I feel like a lot of the times to people when they find out that you are doing that. So I, I grew up in a place where science is generally accepted in Colorado. It's just, you know, there, we never really had any issues with that. How difficult is it to teach science in a place that might not be very accepting of science? It depends. Usually there's really no issues with it. I've always had kids who will come in and they'll be like, my aunt said that that's a lie or like my grandma said that's not how it works. And it's the end of the day, they, I think most of the time know that I'm not lying to them and they kind of are having fun with it. But it can get hard when you do have like tough parents who kind of take it to another level. And I've definitely had like meet the teacher nights where it turns into like, This year, literally, we were doing it out like against the wall because we didn't want everyone in the rooms constantly with COVID protocol. And I don't know, just kind of had one parent just barking at me about how like trying to challenge me and like just the the typical kind of creationist talking points that they think like debunk evolution, just like going at me with them. And it's like, like late, like we could go in there and I could work on the whiteboard and kind of debunk all of those claims pretty quickly. But it's just, I don't know. It's, it is hard because I don't know. It's a weird situation because you also like so much of the issues in Kansas that I face anyways, like I don't have many people that complain about climate change. I don't think they really know that we're talking about it all that much. But when it comes to evolution, like because religion gets put into that corner and you always want to be respectful, especially as a teacher, like you get put into some really, really hard spots. And I think throughout the pandemic, I've kind of changed with how I deal with that. Even like when kids kind of put you on the spot, whereas it used to be like, yeah, you know, that's that's one way of thinking, like maybe that's the way it is to where now it's just like, I don't do that anymore. It's like, well you can believe that, but I'm teaching science. And like, this is the science. This isn't debated. This is consensus. Like, I don't know. It's, it's a pain that you really shouldn't have to deal with as a teacher. Like you're always like, even right now during this segment, I'm like trying to use my words wisely because like, I don't know, you got to dance around it. So, so carefully. 
Yeah. Carlton can probably speak to this too. Like we were just talking about this the other day. We get emails that are like, you know, you said this or that that's wrong. Or like, we'll get like ones about here's how the pyramids are actually built. And like that's stuff that we can just ignore, but like, you got to, you know, deal with <laughs> like that. That sucks. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I mean, that is also, I think one of the reasons I got so into evolution because I mean, we can kind of throw this in with that part because I think it gets to the Kansas part. Like I do have the Westboro Baptist church right down the street. And that is something we deal with in Kansas. And as like a teacher, not only teaching evolution, but teaching it publicly right down the street. Again, that's why I have to be so careful with my words because like before we go any further, their whole thing is they're all lawyers. So they will sue if you say anything that they can sue for. But it's something we have to deal with in Kansas. And it's kind of crazy that we have to deal with it, honestly. I guess that's kind of the bottom line is like, it's crazy that in the year 2022, we're still talking about this here. Yeah. Dang. We had a guy on here, Evolution Soup on Instagram. I've seen some of his YouTube videos. I like those. Yeah. Yeah. He's a cool dude. Uh, Mark. Yeah. (laughs) Star Wars nerd, like through and through. Star Trek, I think too. But yeah, he he talks about like dealing with people like on the street in London that are saying this and that and he'll challenge him and stuff. But I um, think I, I think my video with him is probably his most hated video on his YouTube channel. Oh yeah. Well, what, what happened with that? Buys that because I, I said, I basically asked his audience to respect indigenous beliefs and that science doesn't always have to come first and people lost their freaking minds. Mm. Right. I remember that now. <laughs> yeah. Those comments were rough. Um, so I guess I went to high school in the South uh, and I live here right now to evolution. Like in, in where I live in Nashville, it's like the bluest part of Tennessee for sure. And I grew up in New York. So it was like, never really had to deal with it. Like what they just taught us evolution in eighth grade as if it was like, you know, fact as it is. But then in Tennessee in high school, we had a teacher who was like, all right, today we're going to talk about the E word. And like, I know <laughs> he like started it off by saying he doesn't believe in it, but he has to teach it. And I just was like, oh my God, <laughs> like this is crazy. It, it is a scary amount of teachers that are still kind of that way about it. Like I, I was looking at, I don't, I don't remember the numbers, but it was like, I don't know. There, there it was a higher percentage than you would think of like biology teachers and stuff who don't believe in evolution. And I know it's anecdotal, but in the comment section all the time on those videos, I'll have people who were like, yeah, my teacher, you know, they made it very clear that they just taught it because they had to. And it's just like, wow. Yeah. I don't know. That hurts us in the long run, I think. In my experience, like in middle school, elementary school, and like growing up in Virginia, like it wasn't like we always, the science was fine, but like you got to history class and learn about the war of Northern aggression. That's where things got wonky, but science is always, I never had a, a teacher be like, no, I don't believe in evolution, but I have to teach it. Like it was, you know, fine. Like I think my biology teacher in my sophomore year of high school used to work at the Bethesda virology labs. And he was like, all right, we're going to learn this. You're going to learn the hell out of it. And we're like, all right, Mr. Vale sounds good, man. I think a lot of it really depends on where you're teaching because like, I'm from, like I've told you, I've said I'm from a small town and we had it for like less than a week. We had a couple days on evolution. And I imagine that's because the teacher, you know, doesn't want to deal with, and especially in a small town where everyone knows you, you don't want to be seen as like the, even though she went to my church, like you'd be seen as the atheist out to get, 
religion to a decent proportion of the people in that town. So like, Hmm. I think that has a lot to do with it. And like with where I'm at in Topeka, I asked before I became like before my first year there, I'm like, how do you deal with the evolution unit here? And they kind of told me like, you've got to either cover it really well or just kind of be careful, get the bare basics in because they had had people in the past, like try to record you as if you're doing something wrong and or like stuff like that. And that's, that's why, that's why I really did get into evolution in the first place. Like I went and started watching PBS eons and stuff and was like, if I'm going to teach this here, I need to be confident if one of these people comes up to me on the street or at a basketball game where I'm coaching and does what they do. Is that what fuels you to do the TikToks that you do? Like you said, it was like used to be evolution heavy in the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Especially early on and especially where I'm at, like it was a big motivating factor to like where you see so many people try to get you not to teach evolution. And it's just like, all right, let's, let's do this. And that's kind of my thing with TikTok is like, if you get little short videos in and just sprinkle the evolution in, like you're going to be reaching a lot of people and a lot of people who are probably getting taught curriculums that like purposefully don't teach evolution. So I kind of saw it as a way to just like, I don't know, try to, make it more accessible to kids who really don't even realize they're missing out on it because I don't know, I think it's super fascinating and I don't know, it sucks that so many kids are like pushed away from the entire field from such a young age. Yeah. I think one of my most like well participated lectures, cause I teach like intro to archeology span here at CU Boulder. And like we do, we cover like the course of human history, starting with evolution hominins and like we do this skull lab where we have like 10 hominid skulls and then also a human skull a chimpanzee skull and then i usually throw a gigantopithecus for shits and giggles and like see if i'm like a couple of these don't belong can you guess which one it is and it's like clearly it should be the gigantopithecus but when they actually get to interact with like casts of hominid skulls and actually get to see like the changes in their hands between afarensis africanus and the australopithecine family like then like things start lighting up where i'm like no look at where the spine connects and you can see how it's moving down and like then they're like oh this is starting to track a little bit easier. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that I actually wanted to do. And I, I've reached out a few times over the last year to the people who like run our 3D printer at our school and just haven't gone anywhere. But any teachers listening to this, like you can find the 3D kind of casts for those skulls. They're like made accessible for you to teach with. I think you can download a lot of them free online. And like, that's something I've wanted to do because then you can like have them there, like you said, and let the kids kind of physically look at them and manipulate them. And I think it was like a lot of the actual stuff they've published, they've started kind of making into that open access and you can find it out there. You can't like sell it. That was one thing I thought about doing. I was like, oh, that'd be super cool to buy a 3D printer and sell these things. And I realize you can't do that, but I think you can just make them for use in your classroom. I think it's really interesting, the different forms of media that you can teach in doing labs or anything, or even TikToks now, because you can reach that generation. I feel like this, the Zoomers or whatever you're calling them, Gen Z, is a generation that spends a lot of time on TikTok, social media, things like that. And that is this it just becomes a better out or way to reach those kids. Cause I don't know if traditional teaching methods are as effective as say showing a cool video, a one minute and 30 second video on TikTok. 
you know, to be honest. 100%. Like with, with my teaching, like I became a teacher because like, I want to teach, like I'm passionate about teaching. And if it weren't for the TikTok right now, like I do the best I can at my school, but with everything going on, I just don't feel like I would be feeling like I'm getting that much out of it because like I, I'm working hard, but like these kids have so much going on. They don't care about school right now. And even the ones that do, they're in and out with quarantine constantly. So like you, you never yeah. feel like you're reaching them all that much. But TikTok has really helped me with that because like where I don't necessarily feel like I'm doing as much good with the school, which I mean, I know I am, I'm there for them and everything. It's just, it's that feeling. I do get that from the TikTok still where it's like, I am making a difference right now. Like a lot of kids are seeing this and like, I feel like what I needed growing up was to realize that like the science was still being done. Stuff is being published every day. We're finding new stuff. So like, I feel like a lot of people are being exposed to that without even realizing it when they watch those little one to two minute videos. So I don't know. That's kind of where I get a lot of my fuel to keep teaching right now through this pandemic for sure. Absolutely, man. We'll keep going on doing the good work. And with that, we'll be right back uh, with segment three of episode 95 of Life and Runs podcast here with uh, Isaac Russell. And welcome back. If you're still listening to our show on the All Shows feed, please stop. Go subscribe to our own show and finish the rest of this episode, please, because it helps and support our podcast makes it grow. Thank you. So Isaac, something that we had talked about in the green room here and, and something that we've been discussing since we've been communicating with you, like you want to have a science chat about archaeology with us. And we're like totally down, man. Like that seems like a great idea. And, and one of the ideas that you talked, wanted to bring up was our thoughts on on the younger driest impact hypothesis. Because you, I guess on TikTok, have you, have you gotten like people asking you to review it or have you done content on it already? I, I talk about Pleistocene megafauna a lot and every video I'm going to have a lot of people in the comments that are like matter of fact, <laughs> asteroid killed them all. They found it in Greenland. And it's like, it's one of those topics where honestly, I like got sucked into this early America's by Graham Hancock. And then eventually realized mm -hmm. like once I started becoming more familiar and realizing the stuff he was saying that wasn't true. I realized very quickly, like, Hey, you can't just trust everything you hear on Joe Rogan. My <laughs> man. <laughs> let, let me ask you this though, real quick. What like made you realize that it wasn't like all like based in fact? I never thought it was all based in fact, but I, okay. I assumed he was someone who like with how much praise he always got, I assumed he made like really, really reliable claims and like the stuff he was saying wasn't absolutely outlandish. And then I was just like watching one of his speaks or one of his speeches one night. And he talked about these, they were massive walls, probably natural built or naturally made, but he was talking about how there are some who think the Denisovans were these giants that were building these massive walls. And I, at that point, I just had a full stop. I'm like, dude, I know a lot about ancient human species. Like, that's my wheelhouse. Like, how much has he said about stuff that I don't know a lot about that I just, like, took as a fact? Yeah. And that, that, that was back before my posting days. That was, that was early on when I was first kind of starting getting back into this. But it was just a big kind of turn of events right there where I was like, okay, I need to go palate cleanse everything I thought I learned about the peopling of Americas and... <laughs> 
start kind of talking to archaeologists. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's he does build that trust and comes off like he's this expert on these things. And I can understand why without any context otherwise you could easily glob onto his ideas and they're fantastical and they're exciting. So I, yeah, they're fun. fun Yeah, exactly. And And it's good. Like ancient Egypt, my dad loves like sitting there and watching King Tut documentaries, like with the mystery and like, Oh, what is this? And like, it's very much that. And it's like, it's intriguing. And then when the guy says, that the mainstream archaeologists think this, or they fight about this, or like they just, they're just so dumb. Like they don't, like one time I was on his Rogan, he's like, no one has explored the Amazon. The Amazon has like, do you want to go through the Amazon with a machete and find it yourself, dude? Like, no, like drives me crazy. Anyway, I'll get triggered as much as Connor, but like, but like when somebody says like, the archaeologists don't want you to know this, it then becomes just the kid sells books at that point. You know, I don't know. I just taught my pseudo-archaeology lecture this past week, so I'm like, this is all fresh in my head because I have like a couple slides specifically on Graham Hancock, and I'm so glad. Like, I asked my students, do any of you guys that. know who this is? And they're like, no. I'm like, all right, I'm going to rant about this, so if anyone brings this up, you know what to say because like I have a whole spiel on why he's an ass, and it's like and, – and kind of like tying that back, there's like the three – pillars of pseudoscience strategy it's appealing to authority with a name drop inciting skepticism of the scientific process and then deflection of topics and graham hancock has no training in the sciences he's a writer and he knows how to do these things very well what is what, what was it that shane said shane brought it up that was it pseudoscientists build a case like a lawyer and archaeologists build a case differently this was a long time ago like episode mm. 37 I think okay. that checks out something yeah. like that. I the way that, the white stands one, so it must not have been that one. I think it was Saruti. Okay. Yeah, but like the way that scientists build up a case is vastly different than how pseudosciences do it. Like they start, like we, yeah, just it's just frustrating because it's a different way of thinking. So that's why it's you a get grift. people. Yeah, it's a grift. And that's why you get, and then you look at like Eric Von Daniken with Chariot of the Gods, and then you realize like the dude was literally diagnosed insane and like a narcissist and like out for his own glory. And you're like, Oh, this all checks out. But now we have ancient aliens. So the asshole succeeded. Now, now you got me all fired up. Isaac, you, you should, I, I did a TikTok one time calling out the history channel hard. They commented on one of my videos one time. And I just, really? replied, I replied to them and just the whole thing was a minute long calling them out. I was hoping one of you would get triggered by the book behind me with the uh, Graham Hancock back there. I didn't know if any of you noticed. I saw the John Green. I didn't see the Hancock. Oh, yeah, it's Hancock next to him. I was going to see if anyone would notice it. No, but I I have America before. Is that what it is? Like, it's a a good book. It's compelling. But, like, is it factual? Until you dig deep. Like, it's compelling (laughs) to people who haven't, like, done the actual work, like, been out in the field and, like, experienced the experiences that it takes to realize when someone like that is just grifting. And this to kind of segue back, because this is one of the problems with the younger Dryas impact hypothesis I have, where it's like, it is super interesting. And mm-hmm. I don't have any qualms with it. I think it would like very mel- that very may well could have been an impact that kind of caused things to get a little bit more out of their normal flow than normal. And then like caused a cascading effect, but 
I was introduced to the hypothesis by Randall Carlson alongside Graham Hancock. And then it's just like, I don't know enough about geology to know if when I am buying into this stuff, I'm just getting fooled again, like Graham Hancock was fooling me. And I, and I have looked at papers, like there are papers supporting it besides just Carlson, but I don't know. It seems like, it seems like a lot of that stuff is, it's never as solid of evidence as people like to imply, I feel like. Yeah. So real quick for our audience, the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis suggests that multiple extraterrestrial airbursts or impacts resulted in the Younger Dryas cooling, extensive wildfires, megafaunal extinctions, and changes in human population. First published in 2007, gained much criticism as the evidence presented was either not indicative of an extraterrestrial impact or not reproducible by other groups. Only three years after the hypothesis had been presented, a Requiem paper was published. Despite this, the controversy continues. New evidence, both in favor and against the hypothesis, continues to be published. And that's from a science, uh, Quaternary Science Reviews article, The Younger Dryest Impact Hypothesis, a quick review, blah, 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 Hustle et al. Uh, Dude, you need to read commercial things at the end. <laughs> So That's so quick and good. That will be in the show notes below, just as a brief idea of what's going on. And uh, I don't personally buy into the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. Like I think in the in the green room, I, well, I know this Holiday at All, which had Todd Servo as the second author. They did a really it's like one. Of, it's highly cited as why Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis is BS. That was from 2014, also in the show notes. And then also like as a radiocarbon guy, there is a um, really good article in coordinary science by Jorgensen at all that looks at just like, okay, if we do expect meteors to blow up the planet, how do we see that in the radiocarbon record? Cause like, you know, with radiocarbon, there's a reason why past 1940s, we have to be very careful about the radiocarbon record because a bunch of atom bombs went off and absolutely annihilated <laughs> the, the carbon in the atmosphere. So there's like a post bomb model and like we don't see that radiocarbon wise. Like if we see a huge extraterrestrial impact at 1200 years ago, well within the half-life of radiocarbon, like upwards of 45,000 years, you're going to see an extreme result around that time period. And we just don't see that. And there's, there's some things that you can, and especially with the wildfires, right? Like if there's wildfires after this impact, throwing smoke up into the air, that is going to drastically change the amounts of carbon that are being radiocarbon dated. And we just don't see it. So. Yeah. You'd think you'd really see that in like the ice still at this point. Like, I don't know. And, and that's my thing with it too, is like the, the papers that do find evidence when you read it, it's like, some of these were at 11,000 years ago. Some of these were clear at 60,000 years ago. And it's like a huge compiled list of all these markers. And like some people cite it as like that bona fide proof. Whereas when you actually read it, I don't know, it's never that convincing, but it's such a sexy alternative to what happened that like you want it to be true. And like, I think that's a big part of the buy-in too. Yeah. And it, it, it's one of those topics that people glom onto pyramids, Things like that. Yeah, you get and, ancient civilizations in there too. I, I didn't think about that. Yeah, so it's it, that's. I just I'm getting I'm getting biased thinking about it because people because it's been glommed on by a certain community mm -hmm. of skeptics mm -hmm. and and folks who are not doing great science. So like I don't even if it was something that was truly viable, I have a hard time believing in it because it's purported and you know exclaimed by people. I just, I just don't trust. That's that's what I see too. Whereas like it's. My bias is so far in the other direction now because I'm so used to the 
ancient civilizations and Atlantis people in my comment section, like passing it off as fact to where it's just like, I don't know, like it's frustrating. It's, it's frustrating and you want to have a better idea, but I don't know. Sexy is a great word for it. And like to Connor's point too, like everyone wants to look at, it makes headlines. It's this big mystery. And then Hancock and, and company make it sound like the archeologists disagree and like they don't want this to be real, but I have the evidence here and they cherry pick this evidence and like in the South, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting I moved to Tennessee, but in South and Carolina, you even in South Carolina, you were in Georgia. I was on the border. Like it's the river <laughs> right there. However, toppers right there. And, but fair call out, uh, like they found evidence of like the, whatever those micro crystals are in the sky that like layer right there. And it's like, yes, the, I've seen them myself. They're right there. But like, they use that to compare with other ones around the world that are at different dates in that same period. Like you're saying, it's a little different and like it's cherry picking. Yeah, that's what I see too. Okay. Sorry, I can go on a whole long rant about this, but like my, my thing, or I guess I'll say two things. One, when they cherry pick it, they're like, okay, well look, like this, this clearly happened. That explains why the megafauna died at the same time. It explains this, it explains that, it explains Goldblacky Tepe, it explains AIDS, like what they just like go on and on about it. But then like at the same time, sorry, I lost track because I said AIDS for no reason. Right. So my other point would be that if it did happen, it doesn't necessarily mean it killed everything and changed everything so much because stuff was already warming and dying before that. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. where I, that's where I feel with it too, where it's like, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that this was a major impact. If anything, maybe there was a small impact and maybe it had a small effect on some populations, but it's so hard to study whether there was even a small impact because the field has been so hijacked by pseudo archaeologists mm-hmm. and the Graham Hancocks to where it's like, I don't know. It, it's just muddied the water so much that you can't even look really yeah, unbiased yeah. anymore. Yeah, exactly. Well, and stuff comes through our atmosphere and hits us all the time. Like yeah. that's, that's like a constant. That's just something that's going to happen here in the past and in the future. Like stuff like is going to hit. last week. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like that's why things- you don't look up. Have you guys not seen that? Don't look up yet. That was. I, I interrupted Connor, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm just saying. Um, yeah, it, it's just it's just like David said. It's a sexy explanation. It's like okay, all this thing hits, everything's wiped out. You know, it all connects, and and sometimes stuff doesn't connect. Sometimes stuff is independent and 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 exists in different realms and doesn't affect everything. And that's okay. That's like totally okay. And I feel like so much with this kind of stuff, like we always try to find one cause like that's my thing with, and I've heard you guys talk about it a bit too, with the overkill versus climate. Like realistically, it's probably both like, you know, the climate has populations struggling a bit and then people are killing them and it, maybe they would have recovered, but didn't recover because of the people at the time. Like, I don't know. It's just, we try to find one thing that caused all of this. And it's just so rarely that nice and neat. That's very succinct and a lot better than I can say it. But yes, that exactly. Like they both could have happened. And like the way you praised it is like they maybe they could have bounced back, but then humans are the extra catalysts and stuff like that. Whereas like the public, when they hear these claims and stuff like that or see the headlines and 
that's another issue too. It's like, this is the only stuff that makes headlines, not the, all the millions of studies saying that there was no impact like that will come out. And it's just a nice answer for them that they don't critically think about, Oh, it could be this or it could be that because they just hear that one buzzword, you know, I don't know. And now Hancock got an apology. Someone apologized to him for telling them he was wrong. And they're like, well, you're right on like X, Y, or Z thing. And it was honest. It was a whole thing. But like that further vindicates him and his audience. And I'll stop ranting. But yeah, he reached out to a relative of mine because one of Cranon Hancock's claims in one of his books is that the Pawnee star mythology is and is because of the Egyptians had it. The Egyptians came here and taught us like it's bonkers. And like a relative of mine reached out and was like, this isn't true. And like Graham Hancock reached out to him and was like, well, why don't I interview you for the show? And like this relative does not work in the cultural resources division, like doesn't do that stuff. And he reached out to me and our tipo and we were like, stay away. Like, that's not going to be for your benefit. Like he's going to use you as a talking piece and like put you up. But like, look at this little Pawnee person who believes in this or, or and I'm just like, yeah. So like, um, like chop and edit it up. So it's not what they're actually saying. Like they could say something that's like, this isn't what I believe, but you can edit it to, to look to whatever you want. Yeah. No, I don't, yeah. I don't trust Graham Hancock. Uh, there's no way. Yeah. And like, I've watched multiple, I've watched both of his Rogans. He was on a third as like for part of it. He was on like a zoom. And then I've watched several interviews with him and just like the, the, not the audacity would be the word, but just like the boldness of the claims that he has. He's like, well, Aristotle talked about it. Aristotle came up with the, like Atlantis. And like, he fails to mention that Atlantis was like also an Egyptian story. Like everybody, I, I don't know. It like, it just, the guy bugs me. Because <laughs> he's really good at like topics one and two, appealing to authority and inciting skepticism in the scientific process. Like that's his bread and butter. And he's used by so many different groups, like so many different groups of crazy conspiracy theorists latch on to it. And then it's just like, it's never ending. Like whether it's the people talking about the space impact on my megafauna videos or people talking about, I don't know, sea level rise, like they all find Graham Hancock. <laughs> yeah. And several people like have commented on mine and like, it'll go on like a thread about like the impact and how that killed all the megafauna. And they're like, well, it like, how do you explain this? Or how do you explain that? And I'll be like, well, there were still mammoths in like Europe that didn't get hit by the North American one. And like, they slowly died out. Like, you know, and then somebody was telling me, well, the other animals like were more inland. Like the, they didn't drown in the sea. Level. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> like, what are you doing? I can't at this remember point? if that was my argument or theirs, but it was just like the levels it goes to. It's like it just it doesn't have to be the answer. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to say that the only thing archaeologists don't want you to know is they don't want you to have ex- access to the direct site so you can steal stuff. We want to share our information. We want to share our data. We just don't want people going in and looting and destroying things that we want to study. So like that's that's something we are very careful with. But that's a good we, point. yeah, but we don't. I mean, people are hiding stuff or th- if they are hiding stuff, it's because they forgot about it or they were planning on doing something in the past. Like, I don't it's not nefarious. It's just we have to protect our science and we have to protect the resources because there's multiple stakeholders involved that are also interested in what we're doing. So that- did you see that David Attenborough went on a whole rant against fossil collection laws? recently like he's like all these laws in the uk that don't allow kids to pick up fossils and take them home it's ruining their love of science and it's like david attenborough we're trying to protect it like you should know this out of anyone Oof. and it was a really weird comment thread and i was just like dude you can't just take things home 
that you find (laughs) that's just not okay, David Attenborough. So anyways, but Isaac, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. We're going to have to have you back on in the future because this has been fantastic. And I definitely want to pick your brain more about teaching science in middle school because that that does sound. Yeah, I could go on. Like that was fascinating to me. (laughs) Yeah, this is great. I got all kinds of stories. I mean, it's I like where I'm at because every day is different. You got all kinds of stuff going on. I can imagine, mm-hmm. man. Well, before we end the show, Isaac, what are a couple sources? These can be books, articles, or videos that you'd recommend for anyone interested in science education and science communication through social media. So focusing more on like what I know, like science communication through social media, like I didn't have any books or articles, but I think what you learn from is finding people who love what they talk about and are like who truly enjoy making the content they make. So Trey the Explainer is one on YouTube who like I can just sit and watch his videos. He does a good job. Yeah. North O2, Stefan Milo, which Stefan Milo talks more about archaeology, which isn't my wheelhouse. So I love watching him and hearing kind of a... He's a good friend of the podcast. Yeah, we had a a meme war with him on Instagram (laughs) over the Paleolithic and Neolithic. Yeah, we love Stefan. Yeah. And then PBS Eons is like the classic one where like, if you are just wanting to kind of learn about evolution and maybe you missed out on it a lot, it's a really, really interesting way to just sit down and watch some videos and going back to the science communication thing, like just watch what they do. Like it, I think the crocodile hunter, like he was so good because he was so passionate. And if you're passionate and you love what you're talking about, other people are going to buy in and want to listen. Excellent. Yeah. On the negative end of that, you got Hancock, I guess, but <laughs> we don't have to go into it. <laughs> so, yeah, where can our listeners find you on social media? So my TikTok is at science underscore is underscore real. And then my Twitter is at irussell21. And that's something I'm actually trying to get kind of more active on just because like I have had quite a few bans on TikTok because I get kind of mass brigaded or brigaded. So trying mm. to get people to my Twitter so I can always kind of like make a new account if I need to at some point. Yeah. Cool. So science is science underscore is underscore real and your Instagram. What was that one more time? Instagram is I S A R U S S. I, 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 Oh, sorry. You should restart. Yeah. Yeah. I I honestly don't know my, (laughs) I was trying. I don't know it off the top of my head. So my Twitter Um, is at I Russell 21. There we go. Okay. Cool. Uh, So yeah, thank you for joining us. If you were given the chance again, would you still choose to teach young kids about ruins and other science topics? Absolutely. There's nothing better. Getting them interested. And this is like the field to get them interested in because it's an interesting field. Cool. Absolutely, man. Answer. Yeah, dude. So we just interviewed Isaac Russell. You can find Isaac as Zeke Darwin on TikTok. That's at science underscore is underscore real. And then on Twitter, you can find him at irussell21. Cool. Just want to say before we free on the segment, dude, the fact that what you deal with at school, I just didn't even think about that until right now today. And then the, what you're putting out on TikTok, you're doing a like you're doing good work and I respect that. I appreciate it. Yeah. You guys as well. Like David, your YouTube videos are one of the ones that I was watching before I started making content. So that yeah. stuff's great because other people realize, hey, they can do it too. And the more people we have teaching online, the better because a lot of kids aren't getting this stuff in school. Yeah, that's our jam. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. 
You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So my boss walks into my office the other day. He says, tell me about Suzanne. I'm like, ah, the one that got away. He's like, you're a zookeeper. None of them should get away. <laughs> Damn. That's great. And with that, pun. we are out. <laughs> This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.